We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Everybody, Steve with Sespidelli. I'm coming at you with somebody you may or may not have known before, Dr. Thomas Woods, author of quite a few books. Uh, I have this on the show right here. Uh, you may have, I have them all. I'm a big fan of all of them, really. And actually, well, take that back. I don't remember getting a, a Church Confronts Modernity, but I will get that soon. And he's also interviewed a zombie. So I don't know too many people have done that, along with 2,200 podcasts. Check it out on the website. We'll have it underneath in the show notes. But we want to talk about something that definitely is not on, as he quotes, the three by five card of allowable opinion, national divorce, secession, breaking up. Uh, Dr. Woods, why is that not a popular thing? First off, welcome and thank you for coming on to the program. Well, my pleasure. Well, here's the thing. There is built into the way, unfortunately, most people think a very strong status quo bias, that the way things are is the way they have to be. The way things are is the best way things could ever be. So back in my days as a professor, for example, if I would ask, now I'll grant you this is partly because the students just playing it safe, but if I would ever ask students, um, was the American Revolution inevitable? The answer is always yes. Every single one of them, always yes. Was the French Revolution inevitable? The answer is always yes. Uh, everything is always exactly the way it, it had to be. And so if you look at the United States, the United States, the union of states that we have, is not an object of religious reverence. It's not supposed to be. It's a practical arrangement. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, we revisit it. We try something different. But that's not the attitude most people have. People have this status quo bias. This is the way that things are at this moment is the exact way that they must be. They have to be. I was just talking to somebody the other day who runs, who's in charge of um, recruiting people for a movement called the Greater Idaho Movement. And the idea there is that there is a portion of Eastern Oregon, that, in fact, a, a great deal of it, that just has nothing in common with the rest of the state whatsoever, culturally, politically, philo philosophically, nothing at all. And they're constantly put upon by the rest of the, the crazy state. And what they want to do is withdraw from that state and become part of Idaho where they would be part of a political arrangement that is more to their liking. And this would be to the benefit of everyone involved, because this would mean that the, the remainder of Oregon would be more likely to get what it wants uh, without Eastern Oregon getting in its way. But Eastern Oregon could now get what it wants because it would be with more uh, philosophically compatible people in Idaho. So this would basically benefit you know, virtually everybody, or at the very least, we can say that far more people would get what they want under that arrangement than under the current one. The only thing standing in the way of this is status quo bias, that, well, we can't, this line, this magic line between Idaho and Oregon is sacred and handed down to us from heaven, and we can't move it. Says who? I mean, so, I mean, in any other aspect of life, if something was not working, 
and was resulting in frustration and 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 agony and sorrow and um, and and just never never everybody everybody fighting with each other all the time. We would fix it. But this is the one area where you can't because you know we've got this weird mysticism about the United States that the the little lines within it can't be moved and the exact it has an exact heaven granted number of square feet that make it up and th this is all crazy superstition this is crazy this is idolatry I don't know what else to say we have to think of it as a practical arrangement that either works or it doesn't and we adjust accordingly. Because at the beginning of this union, there was secession movements even from the north. It's not just a southern thing, right? Oh, by no means. The 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 first people really to seriously talk about secession uh, are are talking about it in the first decade of the nineteenth century, and those are New Englanders. Uh, there was secession talk over the uh, Louisiana Purchase. There was secession talk, um, uh, mild secession talk over the the um, embargo that Jefferson imposed, which uh, greatly damaged the maritime economy of New England. And there was at least implied secession talk at the Hartford Convention of 1814 uh, as the uh, War of 1812 was winding down. Because by that point, the, the, if you look at who had been president by that point, it had been, with the exception of John Adams, it had been one Virginian after another. And New England thought, well, how are our interests ever going to be protected in a union like this? So, and and we can, and, and even when when outright secession wasn't being called for, then nullification of federal actions was being called for. So we should nullify the embargo. We should nullify any possibility of a military conscription for the War of eighteen twelve. That was Daniel Webster's view. Uh, again, over and over, and 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 coming as you say, coming from the north rather than the south. So th this is all very deeply and profoundly American to understand that the United States again is a practical arrangement, and to remember that every time the United States is referred to in the Constitution, it's always referred to in the plural. That the United States is a collection of societies. It's not one giant blob. It's a collection of societies that each have a life of its own. And so therefore, in the same way that each of these societies acceded to the union, then by exactly the same sovereign power by which they acceded to the union, they can likewise secede from the union. And this word secede and secession, these words have been so demonized in the American vocabulary and the American psyche, they've been so demonized that we can't have a rational discussion about them, that people just go berserk when they hear hear these words, but there's nothing, what's so scary about secession? It simply means that this arrangement isn't working. Uh, we have two incompatible political cultures and it would be best for everybody for us to go our separate ways. I mean, that's that's common sense. There's nothing scary about that. I love how New Hampshire, their, uh, their uh, secession movement, they start out with like 90 pros about why they leave. Number one is you'll get a pay raise by your by the uh, the income tax being gone. And I've told that the guys here, their eyebrows kind of go, wait, you're right. I keep 40% yeah. of my check that gets stolen all the time. That yeah, should be a great that? sales pitch. But the only divorce signs I see is divorce from your wife or divorce from, divorce from your spouse. We're okay with that divorce, but we're okay being this dysfunctional, tyrannical union till, as you, until death do his part, basically. Yeah, yeah, no kidding, no kidding. And you know, it's it's funny you you mentioned that because um, 
I bought the domain nationaldivorce.com. Uh, and <laughs> nationaldivorce.com cost me a little bit. <laughs> that was not your usual $10 domain. But that's where um, I have a, a, a free um, ebook on this. Um, it's called National Divorce, uh, the, practic the uh, uh, Peaceful Solution to Irreconcilable Differences. But you can also get it, if you're in the United States, you can also get it by texting the word um, national to the number 66866. So you, you go to 66866 and you text the word national, you automatically get the book. Well, I chose the word national. I could also have chosen divorce, but I was just imagining a spouse looking over the shoulder of the other spouse, texting <laughs> divorce to a number that get the wrong idea. So yeah. I chose the word national to text. Yeah, in that book, and in that book, that's why I'm asking to I asked Dr. Woods to come on this program because he brings up and it's mostly from the podcast that he's done. Go to the website to check it out for, for more. But you bring up the coming back from the French Revolution and uh Dr. Living, uh, Professor Livingston's brought up uh, Alfa, uh, Johannes Alphusius, yeah. And I've sent this to priests because I'm going, if, if we can get this in the Catholic view, of we can get the collars to know this stuff, maybe they could preach to the flock and maybe voting would be a little bit different too. So who was this guy that nobody, it's Hobbes and a guy that no one knows of. Yeah, right, right, right. So, and, and as you can see, when you read about him, you say, this sounds, even though he was a Protestant, you say what he's saying sounds vastly more compatible with Catholicism and Catholicism's outlook on society than anything that, you know, that creep Thomas Hobbes thought up. Well, what, what I do in chapter one of, of the book is to say there are basically two ways we can look at this question. And they're represented by, on the one hand, Thomas Hobbes, who's somebody, some of us read in college, uh, 16th century uh, English thinker, but also the, the other person is the one you've never heard of, which is kind of how you know he must be good. If they're not going out of their way to let you know about him, he's probably the good one. And Althus Johannes Althusius was a theorist of the Dutch Federation. And he, th he thinks of society in the following way. Tom Thomas Hobbes thinks of society as being composed of just a, an aggregate of individual people with no social identities, just a bunch of, just an aggregate of individuals. That's not the way... Hobbes looks at it. Hobbes, uh, I beg your pardon, that's not the way Althusius looks at it. Althusius thinks that people are actually formed by their social identities and that they that society does not begin with the individual. It begins with the household. And in the household, we have the relations of authority and subordination. And that is the primordial unit of society. Then we have a group of societies can get together and form a village. And then a group of villages can get together and form a province. And each one of these things, each one of these provinces, villages, households, has an independent existence of its own. It's not just a flat aggregate blob of people, but a collection of little societies. And each when we think about now, now we can apply to this the the Catholic idea of subsidiarity. When we think about which level of society ought to be in charge of which responsibility, well, we first start with the household, and we assign to the household all those things, or we leave with the household all those things that the household is competent to manage. Some things will be beyond the competence of the household, so then we go to the village, 
And then when the village can't handle it, we go to the province. We don't immediately say we have a central government ruling over a bunch of individuals and it should be in charge of everything. That's not the way a healthy society operates. Now, when we then apply this to the United States, we see that the Althusian way of looking at things is precisely what I've been describing. I've been describing a United States that is what? A collection of societies, not an indivisible blob, but a collection of societies. And so it follows naturally from the Althusian model that if one particular unit is unhappy with uh, the way it's being governed by something higher, it can withdraw from it because it has its own previously existing liberties and uh, previously existing rights because it came before any central government. The states were there before the federal government was, and the villages were there before the province was in the uh, Althusian way of thinking. And so these bodies have their own rights. In fact, when we look back in the Middle Ages, sometimes we find that some of the kings in the Middle Ages seem to us today to have had preposterously long titles. King of the so-and-so, protector of the such-and-such. And the reason the king had those titles had nothing to do with how vain he was, but rather it was a recognition of the pre-existing fact that he governs people and areas that have pre-existing liberties and rights that he can't just invade or cancel or arbitrary, arbitrarily overturn. So it's exactly the opposite of the situation we have today where a U.S. federal government or a president can just arbitrarily make demands of communities all over the country. And a, uh, you know, a centralized Supreme Court can impose all kinds of social revolutions on every single neighborhood in the entire country. And not one of them is allowed to resist because the thinking is every neighborhood and every state is the creation of the federal government, has no pre-existing liberties of its own, and can be tampered with anytime we, we want another social revolution carried out. Obviously, we see how that's been working. So to my mind, the, the Althusian model is far, far healthier for a society. And that would include the right for some of these smaller bodies to go their own way and, and find their own destiny. As you mentioned, all the problems you see going on, I mean, it's not a it's not a magic wand thing. All right, we break up and everything's, you know, there's right. stuff that goes on. And like, I think you brought up in a podcast, just like a, just like a divorce. You have to negotiate some items. But when I hear people complain about, oh, the FBI is arresting pro-lifers, or this guy's doing this, or Biden's doing this, and I go, divorce from D.C., and you eliminate Brandon, you eliminate Pelosi, depending on where you live, obviously. There's a lot of pros that go in this. It's, I guess maybe it's the U.S. Olympics that people want to stay in the union for. I mean, the founders weren't this way, right? No, that's certainly true. I mean, Jefferson's view was that uh, it was probably likely that the United States would settle into two, possibly three confederations. Um, you know, so it, it's it's interesting that some people, when they they think about what the United States is, they think, well, it's this union of states. It's a great big country. Um, yes, a union of states is what it is supposed to be, but a union of states, not a United State in the singular. And as I say, the, the, the fact that in the period of the early republic, there is so much discussion of the possibility of nullifying what the federal government is doing or outright secession. This was part of the national vocabulary. 
goes to show that this was not some wild, crazy philosophy. But going back to the earliest days of, of, of the Republic, we see legal theorists talking about this. Uh, and they're not that well known because it's not the narrative that the uh, textbook authors want today. They want the, the United States as a single, irresistible, uh, indivisible blob with um, a central government at the center that can dictate orders to everybody in every nook and cranny of it. Uh, well, obviously, the textbook authors like that model. So that's the one they're going to present to you. But people like St. George Tucker, um, again, nobody's heard of St. George Tucker. But he was one of the great legal theorists of the 1790s. Um, Abel Upshur, nobody's ever heard of him, although he did serve in the federal government. I mean, he also served as a federal judge. Um, and Thomas Jefferson himself. Against that, we have Daniel Webster, who in the 1830s tried to come up with a theory whereby the United States was just a single indivisible blob. But it wasn't until like the 1820s or 30s that anybody even theorized about that. Until then, the only theory of the United States was what we call the compact theory, that the United States is a collection of sovereign states. That was the only theory until there was this effort to come up with some other one to excuse a federal government that wanted to do what it wants. And why have state, state constitutions if that's the right? I mean, you hear the right, second there's no amendment. point in having a state constitution if the federal government does everything. Yeah, exactly. that's what drives me batty when you see the second amendment, second amendment, second amendment. I go, what's in your state constitution? I had a guy in Denver, Colorado running for the state house, state constitution, state government, not worried about the federal and he was quoting from the federal constitution. I asked something about the state constitution. He had no clue. And I've been there no two idea. weeks. Do we have <laughs> a constitution? Yeah. yeah. Um, That's what happens when you when you neglect your local institutions, right? It gets embarrassing. You don't even know you have. You don't even know there's a constitution you need to be referring to in your state. But one nation under God isn't that the the mantra of the the union? How about a whole bunch of nations under God, <laughs> right? And and that's not anything that comes out of uh, the founding fathers. I mean, if if you look at, uh, you know, if, if if we want to talk about the Pledge of Allegiance, I mean, that's written by a that's written by a socialist who, of, of course, like all socialists, is completely against the idea. Like all totalitarians are against the idea of a collection of states in a federation, because they want power. That's how you carry out socialism is with power. And you can't have a state resisting you. You can't have states with existences of their own. Um, and I hate, you know, to 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 uh, bring up Hitler because everybody's bringing up Hitler for everything. <laughs> but but Hitler made clear that uh, if there's one if there's one thing he wanted to do, it was to it was to try to his best to block German federalism because he can't have a bunch of states making their own decisions. He he embodies the will of the people in his own will, which is the way uh, every uh, every dictator thinks that I am. I embody the will of the people. So I, I don't need it. I shouldn't have to deal with all these obstacles, uh, which is, by the way, the way uh, Teddy Roosevelt thought. Now, Teddy Roosevelt is loved by everyone, which is how you can tell he must have been a bad president. If Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton uh, love him and also... Um, you know, Mitt Romney loves him, then you know he's no good. Okay, just I don't have time to go into, I've written about Teddy Roosevelt, but you know he's no good from that alone. But his view was, I embody the will of the people. That everybody in the Senate, well, each senator was elected by his state. 
but I, I was elected by the whole people. So I should be able to, I shouldn't have to deal with obstructionists in the Senate. I'm trying to carry out the will of the people. So there was a time when the U.S. was working out an arrangement with the Dominican Republic and the Senate would not pass this treaty or would not ratify this treaty. And so when the Senate went out of session, Teddy Roosevelt just renamed it, not a treaty, but an executive agreement, and then just ratified it himself. And he said, well, of course I can do that because I embody the will of the people. All of this stuff is dangerous, dangerous talk because it, it gives one particular person carte blanche, in effect, to do what he wants in the name of representing the will of the whole people. We, we don't want any of that. that. That's not anything that's not part of the, the U.S., um, the, the, the union of states that constitutes the United States. And wasn't that what Mason, I mean, the part of the anti-federalist, the real federalist, what the, he, he warned about the elected king, elected monarch in a sense. That's right. There are some, not all, but some warnings from the so-called anti-federalists. And you're right. Isn't it ridiculous how upside down these terms are? I mean, they're the ones who wanted real federalism and they're the anti-federalists. Uh, but, but they did indeed warn about this. Uh, and, and they did indeed warn about uh, a, a, a central government that would do whatever it wanted. And, you know, and, and people like Alexander Hamilton were trying to assure people in the Federalist, which is sometimes called the Federalist Papers, but in, in the original, it was just the Federalist. And um, Alexander Hamilton would say, oh, look, the federal government is going to have only those powers that, that are delegated to it in the Constitution. And he gave agriculture as an example. Uh, you know, there's no authority over agriculture, so that would rest with the states. But then once the Constitution is ratified, all of a sudden, Alexander Hamilton interprets the Constitution all differently. Oh, no, 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 agriculture can come under uh, federal supervision. Oh, really? So once the people have uh, gone ahead and ratified it and it takes effect and they're not quite trapped, but it, it is a bit of an ordeal to get out of it, as you can see. Uh, then all of a sudden he's going to let them know, oh, by the way, there are all these powers we can exercise over you. And what? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> so guys, this is one of those things that's not a perfect uh, one. Like I said, you don't swipe the wand and it just happens. It's something that needs to be talked about. I personally believe it's the only political option available on the table because as I think as you wrote in your book, the free ebook, Hobbes is the vote harder mentality. And that's all you see is, hey, we'll just wait for November. I have people talking about it in two years, we'll get the vote for Trump again. God, it's between then and now, don't we don't care about what happens. We just need Trump back in the office and everything's gonna be sunshine and lollipops again. Yeah, we, we, we've definitely got to think differently, especially because we're now in an environment in which um, at least the left is obviously just going to use its power to strike out at people like you and me. The left is going to do that. The right is generally not going to do that because that's just not what they're made of. So in, in that kind of arrangement, who do you think is going to win out? Yeah. But indeed, we have to think differently. Even though, yes, there will be problems. And yes, mere secession doesn't solve all problems because a lot of times there's also uh, conflict within a state. Yes, that's true. But before you list for me all the reasons that a national divorce or American secession is inadequate or won't work, also make me a list of all the problems we suffer under now. Because it's, it's not fair to cast my proposed solution against a perfect alternative but the existing status quo doesn't get critiqued at all. No, 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 no. I, 
I'll cast my solution against the actual system we have now, not some perfect system, but the actual system we have now. They both have drawbacks. Yeah. I just think this alternative has fewer of them. As Professor Livingston told me, he said, we got to break up, but then we got to convert it. So is that act yeah. locally, think locally that your friend Brian, Brian McClanahan talks about all the time. It's a mantra That's I can't right. stop getting out of my head. That's but, right. Dr. Woods, I appreciate your time. I'll put the links in the show notes for the nationalvoice.com, the Tom Woods show. He's got like 2,200 podcasts up. Uh, check out the books. And you got the, the Liberty Classroom, the uh, uh, homeschooling network. As oh, well. yeah. Homeschooling is ronpaulhomeschool.com. So appreciate, Dr. Woods, uh, your time and thank you for coming on. My pleasure.